You're listening to episode 81 of the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. Hey, we're Sub Radio. You're listening to the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. Here's your host, Suze, founder of the Rockstar Advocate. Hello, you're listening to episode 81, Musicpreneur Spotlight, Jason Spiewak. I'm your host, Suze, a mindset coach helping music professionals get clear on their goals and find the time to get it all done while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. With so much change going on around us, it can easily feel like everything we once did is out the window, and trying to figure out how to adapt on a constant basis can feel exhausting. When I'm feeling overwhelmed and exhausted, I like to talk to a good friend and forget my troubles for a bit. Earlier this year, before social distancing became a thing, a good friend of mine joined me at Luminary, an amazing co-working space that I look forward to one day returning to. We poured a glass of wine and hit record. I felt now was the perfect time to share a conversation with a good friend who is not only inspiring with what they've accomplished, but who also lifts others up and provides practical advice on how to ride the waves of change. Jason Spiewak started out as a touring musician and eventually went on to become the president of Rock Ridge Music only to leave it behind to manage independent musicians under his agency JLS Management. From there, he expanded JLS into Noble Steed Music, a full-service entertainment management company built to represent a music-centric client base that is active worldwide. I'm skipping a lot of steps here, but I'll let him fill you in on the details. We cover a lot in this conversation, the history of the industry over the last 20 years, what managers like him look for in the artists that they work with, and how you can join us this December as we head once again to Guatemala for a service trip that is sure to change your life or at the very least expand your world. As of the time of this episode being published, the trip is still moving forward. I've left additional information on what we discuss in the show notes, including some gorgeous photos of our trip last December, so be sure to head on over to therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP81 to see what we're talking about. This is one of our longer episodes, so kick back and find comfort in Jason's lessons that teach us that while we're going through a lot of change right now, those who can stay curious and open to trying new things will do just fine. You ready? My good friend Jason, how are you? I'm well. Tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got started in in this whole masochistic industry that is music. Well, uh, my name is Jason Spiewak, and I am 43. I'm a Scorpio. I don't believe in horoscopes. I think it's all bullshit. Seems a good place to start. Most uh, Scorpios would say that, though. Right. So. Of course. Yeah. Obviously, mm. what with the long-pronged poisonous tail and all. Uh, so back here on Earth, uh, I played in a band in college and wore a dirty white baseball cap backwards and played Fish and Dave Matthews covers nice. for drunk people. And I was fat and drunk in a van, and I aspired to someday be fat and drunk in an office. That was the fan down by the river, or you didn't go that far? Occasionally we would park down by the river, but usually the van was on its way to a gig. That's all you really need. We did have fans, which is bizarre looking back on it, but I played in a van for five years. We toured from Canada to Florida, Mm -hmm. uh... And eventually attracted things like a booking agency and a manager and some label interest. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is that brushing your teeth in a truck stop alongside truckers is not for me. 
And that's not to judge. Some people uh, don't have the makeup for it. Those who enjoy that. And it's cool. Like, you know, I've been fortunate enough to see touring Mm -hmm. at the highest level. And uh, one of my business partners at a label that I worked with was a guitar player in Three Doors Down, a guy named Chris Henderson. Mm-hmm. was a partner at Rock Ridge Music. And Chris and each guy in Three Doors Down had their own tour bus. Nice. You know, and, and Chris's was uh, outfitted with uh, every possible gaming system and mm-hmm. big flat screen TVs and all that. And it was very luxurious at face value, but also at the end of a show, right? you know, he went back to his bus that was appointed beautifully and he was alone. Yeah. And so he was very happy to have some company and, you know, and Chris is a lovely guy. I mean, he's a a veteran of the Iraqi war and like definitely lived a civilian life, for lack of better words, before becoming a rock star. And so Chris was always sort of very grounded. Okay. And so being on a tour bus with Chris is not being on a tour bus with like Brad Arnold, the singer three doors down, who's like a bit of a nut and a partier and all that, all all that with love to Brad, Um, very different hangs. And so... My point is that no matter what, no matter what part of touring you see, if you're right. in a van or if you're just driving your car down the street uh, to load your gear in to play a basement bar all the way on up to being in a big luxurious tour bus, sure, it's still a very lonely existence and often a bit of a grind. Right. And did you find, I mean, we've talked about on this podcast with our mutual good friend Karina Karina, we've talked about uh, post-tour depression and like the being on the road and then you're back at home and then you're on the road, but then you're back at home. Like, did you see that whether it was with you yourself or with the other musicians you're on the road with? Like, is that transition really hard or do just some people take it harder than others? Well, first shout to Karina, Karina, love her. Um, I think that depression is, is something that often resides within someone Mm -hmm. regardless of circumstance. And so if you are depressive, uh, touring either, the entering into and engaging in tour or the recovering from tour, right? something is going to be provocative if you're someone who gets depressed Got it. as it relates to touring because I think it's a natural kind of response to the high highs and the low lows. Right. So you feel like it just kind of maybe exacerbates what might already be there. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think so. And that's yeah. not to say that someone who has not been depressed can't get depressed on the road. Right, sure. right. Sure. So yeah. people do well sleep deprived. Right, exactly. Yeah, whatever, right. you know, it takes different strokes. But so my path in the music business was not going to be uh, one that was dominated by the road. And so I crossed over to the dark side in 2001, got an assistant job at a record company, Artemis Records, may it rest in peace, mm-hmm. uh, working with the likes of the Baja Men, who let the dogs out, uh, credible stuff like Warren Zevon, uh, who was the first artist to thank me in liner notes, nice. uh, which was very, very nice of him. Warren was very sweet, uh, except when he wasn't. Steve Earle, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, Graham Nash mm. of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and uh, Sugar Cult, Kitty, some really great rock stuff, and like, you know, some not-so-credible uh, stuff, okay. but I, I learned a ton at Artemis, read every piece of paper I could get my hands on, okay. then went to Studio E Records, was that label's uh, label manager, may okay. it rest in peace, then went to TVT Records, may it rest in peace, yep. I'm sure you're seeing the trend here, Yeah. worked with Pitbull, Little John, the Yin Yang Twins, Seven Dust, Tedra Moses, mm-hmm. um, I actually ran 
the search engine optimization campaign for Pitbull on his first record. Sweet. Which, you know, when we began, if you Googled Pitbull, you just got information about the dog. Within four months, though, Pitbull, we were managed to get him number one on Google. That's awesome. He was on his debut record uh, called Miami. Money is a major Mm. issue. So that was fine. I found that to be unlistenable. um, But that's just But at least you could find it. Oh, yeah. So, which is half the battle. Exactly. Yeah. So good on you. Yeah. I have to say one thing I love about this industry is that it's music, but I mean, the fact that you have also had experience with search engine optimization and learned all of that, like there's so many pieces to this whole thing. And like, that's really cool that like that was part of your background while you were there. Well, and I was fortunate in that getting into the music business in 2001, Mm -hmm. I feel very, very lucky in that I got to earn while I learned. Right. You know, being an assistant or being a coordinator at a big company at that time, you were really afforded the mm-hmm. ability not so much to make mistakes, but to kind of feel it out in real time. And there weren't massive digital music, digital departments at these companies. It was, you know, one new media person at Artemis. I joined the new media department at TVT. It was a staff of four with mm-hmm. the addition of me. It was a, a growing piece of the business and, and none of us had it figured out. And we treated it really like publicity in the early days. You know, you had your relationships with major outlets like AOL or MSN or Yahoo mm-hmm. or, you know, then uh, iTunes Music Store became a thing. And then as, as digital music promotion evolved into digital music sales... Those of us who stayed in it, I'll include myself, evolved into becoming a digital sales guy, working with the Napster reps or Rhapsody or Pandora or whatever it was. And so it was a natural evolution of the business, but digital was a part of the business that was evolving the fastest. Right. And also growing, Mm -hmm. which is better for those of us who are in that as opposed to those who are in radio promotion or publicity or manufacturing, God forbid, those people are doing other things. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because I came, you know, you have about a five-year gain on me. So I came in five years later and I was on the retail side. Right. And so within the 10 months that I was there at my first label, half my accounts closed. Yeah. Like in 10 months. So, you know, and we're talking about the big wigs, like the Tower Records and the Sam Goodies and the, you know. Oh, I remember. And it was, Hastings closed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. was just like, and like Amoeba, people were like, are they going to stay on? Are they not going to stay on? And like, it, you know, to to be coming into it when you're on the piece that's growing is like really exciting because for me it was very depressing. Um, so, so I think it's really cool that you came in right as this thing was finding its sea legs and you got to be a part of that. That's like really cool. It was yeah. interesting. I, you know, I think it kind of cuts both ways because at the time, right. I didn't know that I was on the cutting edge of technology. Right. Just you were yeah. giving this is what you're doing. It's just well, I have a job. Right. I've right. got this I've got this whisper song by the Yin Yang <laughs> twins where they're talking about doing terrible things. Uh, think I'll promote it online. There don't seem to be too many rules there. That was another one of our success stories mm-hmm. at TVT was promoting that song. That song was not meant to be a single, which is probably mm. not surprising. Oh, wow. Okay. But that was the, the radio department reacted mm. to what we were able to create online mm. with that song, mm-hmm. um, which, again, was like a very eye-opening experience. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to 2004. Uh, arrogantly thought that I could do it better. And so together with some partners started an imprint called Rockridge Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came to be distributed by Warner Music through ADA. And uh, eventually I was named that company's president. 
ran the label for eight and a half years, and then in January of 2013 left so that mm-hmm. I could focus more on management. So to zoom the lens out from me for a second, sure. you know, you have this great transition in music where in the 90s, all the way through the 90s into the early 2000s, CDs really ruled the day, right. of course, $20 a pop. And then it sort of erodes a bit as you make your way into 2004, 2005, the Apple Music Store mm-hmm. at the time, the iTunes Music Store really gains some traction. 99 cent downloads are the thing. Mm-hmm. 71 cents after the distributor takes their cut. And then you're shifting into a fraction of a penny for streaming. Right. And so I got out of uh, being a record company president, not just because of my natural uh, career progression, but also the sky was falling. Mm-hmm. And so even looking at CD manufacturing specifically, like in 2017, uh, there were about 75 million CDs manufactured mm-hmm. uh, nationwide. And then if you get into 2018, it's like 61 million. Right. And tremendous drop off. And that was already the bottom had fallen out of the CD business. So mm-hmm. $20 discs, 99 cent downloads, right. fraction of a penny for a stream. There's right. not going to be money to do right. anything. So, right. you know, and I'm an artist development guy. And mm-hmm. so one of the ugly truths about the music business that I realized early that has stayed true, like many truths do, is that you need money to do things. And money is not the end-all, be-all. It's not what drives me to make every business decision. But it's a signal that you're doing the right thing. Right. Either your records are selling because they're called for or your tickets are selling because people want to see you or whatever. Sure. And so if you're doing the same things mechanically and getting less and less money and you don't evolve. Yeah, because some people would see it as like you were president of a label, like – what it you know that at least for me for somebody who wanted to start out in this business like that was always my goal and like to I never thought in my teenage years that there would come a time where maybe that wouldn't look as attractive to to aspire to that and so what was that like to I mean well first of all you took a risk when you went from working in the digital departments and then creating your own imprint with your partners but then what what was also then the transition like when you decided I'm going to leave all of this and go do management like were you nervous about it did you just feel no I have to do this This is what I'm doing like well it's all it's all within context sure you know I think that there is in order to answer your question I'll answer the emotional question first sure you know yeah there were a number of times throughout that process where I felt like man I've got to be out of my mind (laughs) to be doing what feels right right and I think that's worth sort of pausing on and reiterating because that is a, a useful bit mm-hmm. no matter what it is. Like if a thing makes you nervous, it's probably making you nervous for a reason. And mm-hmm. when your fight or flight gets triggered, and mine was often uh, in making these career decisions, you get to find out, A, whether or not the opportunity is really worth moving forward on, and B, whether or not you are risk averse. Right. Uh, I'm not risk averse. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to roll the dice and it has not always worked. Yeah, we're celebrating the wonderful things that I've been able to accomplish, but I assure you I failed it a ton. You know, when I left TVT to work with Rockridge full time, it was because I had this idea that as the big companies were consolidating, mm-hmm. you know, there were four majors at the time, it became sure. three. As that was happening, a number of acts that were viable artists defined as selling tickets and merchandise, maybe not so many records anymore, 
artists like Real Big Fish, artists mm-hmm. like Stroke Nine. You know, both of those bands came out of the Universal system that we signed uh, to Rockridge. Mm-hmm. Real Big Fish was headlining Warp Tour. Mm-hmm. They just weren't selling millions and millions of records. They were selling sure. hundreds of thousands of records, which for a little old Rockridge music, mm-hmm. that was just fine. Right. So I viewed our little independent record company as like firemen holding a trampoline outside of a giant birding building. And we were just going to try and save as many people as we possibly could. Right. Profitably. Yeah. As things wore on at Rockridge and after, you know, six years, seven years, eight years, money does ugly things to good people. Mm -hmm. And the absence of money is worse. Mm. And so what I got to see was the celebration of a record company. In 2009, we had our biggest year, Mm -hmm. gross sales. We were held up, Rockridge Music was held up within Warner Music as an example of a new model record company that was doing things the right way. Mm -hmm. And that was both a blessing and a curse because what we were doing was out of necessity. We knew we couldn't compete at radio with the big labels. We had to succeed online. Yeah. In the same ways that I found success through the Whisper Song, Mm -hmm. the Yin Yang Twins. Right. You know, working with a Southern rock band who had a really gritty song about racing cars. We got it featured on the NASCAR website, Mm -hmm. NASCAR.com. We have like 75 million downloads of the song. And it's like, well, how does that happen for an artist that nobody's ever heard of? Um, Blanco Diablo is the artist and Jamie Ray is still a brilliant guitar player. But, you know, it's just finding those opportunities. We did it because we had to. That was why we grew to that point. From that point, 2010, things really start to get hairy. CDs are not selling. 2012, having a junior hit Mm -hmm. uh, with Rachel Platt and a song called A Thousand Ships. I signed Rachel to her first record deal uh, on the album before Fight Song. Mm -hmm. And so with Rachel, we had a record that was the second highest charting album at Hot AC, which is a radio format, Mm -hmm. in the year 2012, second only to Mumford & Sons. Wow. We offered to manufacture and give Best Buy 7,500 units of the record, and they said no. Wow. And at that point, I was like, well, (laughs) yeah, time to go. Yeah, that's different than a few years before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, free product. Because we couldn't, we kept lowering the list price to try and get it in, and they they wouldn't, you know, take it. And so that was the battle that we were fighting. But you did pretty early on figure out like experiential music like the money is in the experience like putting a song that made sense with cars to find nascar like you know and that's where the money seems to be continuing to go is like find a song that fits a mood or fits a product and i wouldn't say that it really matters who the artist is if the song is the right fit they'll take it and then yeah it could do wonders for an artist right well that that's really what music consumption has become in 2020 it's all on demand right And it's all uh, Mm curation-driven. So, you know, there are now forty or 50,000 songs uploaded to Spotify on a daily basis. Right. How is anyone supposed to hear any of it? Right. Uh, You know, it's a challenge. And even if you have good intentions and you're an eager consumer of new music, I wouldn't know where to begin. Right. So you have to position your music in a way that it can be understood and digested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I know we sp- said Spotify, so everybody's ears perked up, but hold tight. We will, we will get back to that, but take us then 
after you, you decided, okay, I'm going to go into management, you know, you've got JLS management and you've got Noble Steed Music. And so what came first? How did that all form? And how has that been compared to being the president of a label? That's a cool question. So when I left, there was no lack of work. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to hit the ground running with JLS Artist Management. And that was my focus at the time. I wasn't really interested in running a record company anymore. Mm. I had record company fatigue, having been the president of one for all those years. It was a giant, living, breathing behemoth of a pain in the ass. They paid me very well. And then I left all that and said, well, all right, I've got me. My intention when I started JLS Artist Management was not to be anti-label because that's foolish. I'm not anti-anything. Sure. But to focus on artist development Mm -hmm. and to focus on making great music and finding an audience for it. That was a dream that lasted like a week (laughs) or more like a month. And so, you know, that was January 2013 in February of 2013, I cut a distribution deal with Ben Patterson at Dashgo mm-hmm. and established Noble Steed Music as the label component of our business. And the reason that I did that is twofold. One, you know, I had clients who were signed to record companies at that time. And so they had their label situation spoken for. Mm-hmm. But there were other artists who, you know, were just going to be uh, uploading their music through independent distribution solutions. And I wasn't happy with any of those for a variety of reasons and just thought, well, I've known Ben Ben Patterson a long time. Uh, Dashko does a great job. Mm -hmm. Let's compete at least uh, within the distribution space. And so when I cut the deal with Ben at Dashko, it was to give my artists who were not signed uh, to record deals Mm -hmm. the ability to put their records out in a way where I knew that they would get paid. Mm-hmm. And that it would be effective. And then the second reason uh, that I established it was because I understood that there was a community mm-hmm. of music consumers that were paying attention to what I was doing. Right. And not not me for the sake of me, but a glut of artists that were really ringing the bell as singer-songwriters. When, again, the labels consolidated in the 2000s. A lot of what happened at venues was dictated by record companies for a while because of tour support budgets and, you know, you could have uh, a six-piece band on stage and everyone Mm -hmm. is making a living and there might be 100 people in the room and it didn't matter because the label was writing a check for two or three grand to cover the week, whatever the loss was. Well, as that money evaporated, singer-songwriters really carried the day and you've got one uh, dude or one woman on stage just playing with an acoustic guitar or a piano and that's one person to pay and it's one person in a car or as opposed to six people in a van. And so the economics of A&R were really driven by that. Right. My point is that, you know, I'm a piano player. Mm -hmm. My dad was a great guitar player and he schooled me in the ways of Billy Joel and Elton John and James Mm -hmm. Taylor and uh, Joni Mitchell. And so, I started signing stuff that just pleased me. Yeah. There were other people who were similarly pleased. And so we built a music festival when I was at Rockridge called Hotel Carolina. Okay. Uh, we ended up growing it to the point where, you know, it was like 150 tickets the first year, then 250 and then mm. 350. And then it grew to 500 sellout. And the venue, uh, the Windjammer in Isla Palm, South Carolina only held 550. Okay. But we packed that thing out. And it was a huge party. And like, it was just like, 
All One right. person on stage with acoustic guitar. Cool. I mean, we built some bands into it, but you know, again, my point was Noble Steed became a little bit of a you know a, a torchbearer for um, strummers. Got it. And so you've you've come with this reputation of you were the president of Rockridge. You now got your own management company, and I know a lot of listeners are again perking up like management. What is that about? How do I get one? Um, I know everyone's always wondering that stuff. So how do you pick? Has it evolved over the years in terms of how who you gel with? Do you look for being that you have an artist development background? Do you look for somebody who needs to be developed more? Do you like somebody who's already shown their development? Like, what is your... How does an artist get your attention where you consider managing them? Uh, It's a really good question. I mean, some of it is the natural selection of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. There is an echelon of artists that is sort of below the cut that has not managed to engage really any audience at all. And that's not meant to sound like a criticism. It's more of an observation. It's sure. like, oh, well, this artist, I really love the songs, or I love, you know, something has to sort of gain my attention or a manager's attention <clears throat> to get them to focus. And oftentimes it just isn't there. There just is not a crowd. Mm-hmm. Because no matter how great the manager, and the same was really true when I was running a record company, no matter how great I thought Rockridge Music was, we were not kingmakers. We mm-hmm. were not going to come in and just magically make something that wasn't appealing to anyone already mm. appealing to everyone immediately. Right. It just doesn't work like that. Right. And I'm sensitive to it as a songwriter and artist myself. Like sometimes it's an impossible bell to ring. Sometimes the crowd is not willing to listen. Sometimes the crowd is perfectly willing to listen. You're just not selling what they're buying. Mm-hmm. So you sort of have to figure that out. And so the artists who are attractive to me for management have already done that math. Got it. Yeah. And already know who they are and what they mean. Right. What they bring to the table and Yeah. Well, and and it's not, you know, the music business uh, there have always been people with money who show up and are sort of enamored with music and shiny objects mm-hmm. and I want to go to the Grammys and all this. Um and I've been voting for the Grammys since 2003. It's great. Right. It's also who cares. Right. And that's not to be uh, critical in any way of Naris. It's just like it's an exercise that has nothing to do with the validity of the music itself. Mm-hmm. Let's not fool ourselves. It's a, yeah. bigger, it's a bigger thing. Sure. Grammys are important. Sure. Got to have them. Yeah. What does it mean? I don't fucking know. <laughs> if you know, great. Give me a ring. If you know what the Grammys mean, my email address <laughs> is jason at jlsmgmt.com. Drop me a note and fucking fill me in so that I can be more educated as to what they mean. But We'll have a form in the show notes, everyone. You can submit your best answers. Yeah, that'd yeah. be hilarious. And then we'll get to know one another. Um, and my door is open. I'm, I'm very uh, yeah. candid that way. And, sure. But to answer your question, you know, attracting a manager is not just about dollars either. Mm-hmm. I've had people show up at my door, hey, we'll pay you an absurd amount of money to come in and make our complete disaster of a project coherent. I can't do that. And even yeah. if I could, why would I want to? Right. It's not, I'm not in it for that. I'm in it for you have your thing that is so painstakingly beautifully crafted that you have people who give a shit about Mm -hmm. it. I have my relationships and and tools, you know, an office of people who know how to do, uh, deliver certain services that help enhance and Mm -hmm. grow your audience and maintain the relationship, all those things. When it goes well, 
The reason why I still am an artist manager and not a label president, not that I haven't had my opportunities, is because I fundamentally believe this. If you are an artist manager, you can answer the question, is this right for the artist Mm. first? As a label president, you have to answer the question, will this make the record company money Mm. first? And sometimes they're the same answer and sometimes they're not. And again, it's different people, different philosophies. If there is a label that I can run while still answering, is this right for the artist? Sign me up. It's just – you know, oftentimes you can. Right. For artists that maybe you don't manage, you've also opened up other services and other things that people can hire you for and use your experience and connections for. So when did you decide to do that? And can you tell us about these services, namely that you offer for Spotify and how artists out there that maybe can't have you as a manager can can get your, get your ear um, when it comes to building an audience there? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to the ability to do good work. As a company uh, on the management side, we might promote between 15 and 20 songs a year Mm -hmm. as a management company. And so, again, just to sort of backtrack a little bit, 2013, 2014, 2015, I'm still pretty Mm anti-Spotify. And then I went uh, to get drinks one day after work with a former coworker of mine, a guy named Jeremy Kramer, mm-hmm. uh, who's at M Theory, a uh, brilliant manager in his own right. And Jeremy inadvertently sold me on why Spotify is important for uh, curation and new artist discovery. And we were just like having a very candid conversation about marketing and promoting records. And the things that Jeremy had to say definitely opened my eyes. Mm-hmm. And so I had a friend who was working at Spotify at the time. He's now over at Google Music, uh, a guy named Tuma Bassa. And Tuma uh, was, you know, a very, very big in the hip hop genre. And he was kind enough to, again, further educate me mm-hmm. about why Spotify uh, was important for artist discovery. And so we started in 2015 to build a database and build relationships at Spotify to market and promote our records. You know, 2016, 2017, we get some major placements for our artists. We as a company, again, only 15, 20 songs a year. Spotify can handle promotion f- for 15 to 20 songs right. a week or a month. And so we started doing it on a uh, for higher basis when other managers and attorneys and label people uh, started to take note of what we were able to do for uh, for new artists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, if you have a song, it really it is so song driven Mm -hmm. and we're super selective about who we work with because most of what gets placed editorially Mm -hmm. on these Spotify playlists fits within a certain realm. And if what you're promoting isn't going to work, you know, I don't get me wrong. Like I said, I love money, but I don't, I don't want to fail. And so we need to noble steeds agenda is we need to have quality songs that we continue to serve to the curators that they can place and make use of. And, we can do that. And so we do – we can be hired to work Spotify playlisting. We can be hired to put your record out because we know how to do those things the right way. Right. And it seems interesting that it's kind of come full circle like at the beginning of your career, kind of really learning the, the basics of how a song could fit in a more curated experience. And, and now we're here. Yeah. So, I mean who could have predicted it? Um, but I mean you certainly have like – all of the the foundation already built into everything that you've you've done in your career. 
to be able to do this for artists in a really effective manner. So I think that's really cool. Well, thanks. Yeah. And yeah. Indeed, I think it's, you know, it's very easy to be skeptical and to feel skeptical mm-hmm. in the music business. Like, how is this ever going to work? But the one thing that I have learned, having been doing this for over 20 years, uh, is one, I'm old. And two, older, I guess. I'm older. Sure, that's older. fair. I've been waiting my whole He's older life. than me, and that's all that matters. Always. Yeah. I'll always be older than you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's – once you – are willing to open yourself up to the breadth and depth of the music business. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, it's not just Bruno Mars and then shit I haven't heard. No, there's a whole strata of artistry that you can right. learn from. Right. Because it is about learning and educating yourself. And, and I, I, I learn something new uh, every day. Yeah. And um, I think it's, it's been very helpful in my professional evolution. Mm-hmm. Because those who had all of the answers when I got into the business, with very few exceptions, are now doing other shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to have a curiosity about this. Right. And so when people, you know, catch your eye in terms of, you know, for management services, that obviously there's a lot of a lot of moving parts there and it's a bit more um, bit more complicated. But with these these other services that you offer, especially with Spotify, how can people, you know, I know that there's a there's a application process and everything, but how can people apply? Can anybody apply and you listen to anybody or like what can they do? Where can they go? Yeah, thank you for service. that. Yeah. So uh, go to noblestevemusic.com and uh, check out our literature there. It's very brief about Spotify mm-hmm. and send us a tune. We do listen to everything that comes in. And, uh, you know, again, don't send us 80 songs. Right. Send us one or two because it's a singles-driven market, whatever mm-hmm. you feel is going to be the most competitive. And we'll give you some feedback. And if we feel that we can work uh, with your music, we'll let you know. And if we feel that we can't, we'll let you know that too. That's awesome. So, guys, noblesteedmusic.com. And if you need that, again, it's in the show notes page. So go check it out. Um, I want to circle back to the artists that you manage and, and this this family of, of musicians that you've you've built over the years, one of the things, you know, you mentioned, yes, we met at at conferences. And and I think one of the things that I know what I've always respected about you is that, like, yes, you have the knowledge and the experience to do really amazing work, but you choose the people you keep around you very carefully. And you always seem to attract and choose good, solid, moral, decent, you know, compassionate people to keep in your in your world. And so I've also noticed that is true with the artists that you work with. You know, they, they do love to give back. They are involved with their communities. They're involved with engaging their fans and they're, you know, they're, they're people, they're grounded much like, you know, going on tour with, with the guy in three doors down and and becoming a partner with him. Like it's, there's, there's that groundedness where they're, they're people. And a large part of what you do is giving back and and being involved in community affairs. I mean, you know, you had when you had the off the record festival and I, you know, we had just met like a month before and I came to your festival and and part of it was before the music even starts, we're going to go out and we're going to serve the community of Atlantic City and we're going to feed the homeless. You've always intertwined it with the projects that you do and you've got Mile and I really would like our audience to know more about Mile, how they can get involved and and how you involve your artists. Well, thank you for that. You know, and I think that there there are a few things I want to respond sure. to. Uh, 
But first of all, I'll answer your question. So the mile, the music is love exchange. Mm-hmm. The music business and really any business, regardless of what it is, does require you to make certain compromises Mm -hmm. and not ethical or moral ones. But, you know, you have to sort of surrender your dream to earn a living in some way. That's true, I think, really for everyone. Absolutely. Even artists who are killing it at the highest level, I think, feel that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so in the interest of trying to give people an opportunity to stay grounded or to strip away the nonsense of what this is like, I'll define that a little bit better. Sure. At a concert, you've got a small collection of people that are using music to communicate with a large collection of people. And so there's an exchange that happens there. Mm-hmm. And we use our guitar, we use our keyboard, and the drums and the lights, and all that stuff. It's all it's all a message. It's a feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's a vibe. And people attend concerts because they want that they want that connectivity. They want Oh, I know the words to that song. People want to feel uh, like they belong. Mm-hmm. And so what the mile does with our trips to Guatemala and with the stuff we do in the U.S. and what we I used to do it off the record, it, it's giving someone an opportunity to attend a concert. Right. Someone an opportunity to be in a room and connect, connect mm-hmm. with, you know, kids who may speak Spanish and you don't speak Spanish or, mm-hmm. you know, people who have been homeless for 10 years and you're serving them a hot meal or whatever it is. It, it's not about privilege or not privilege. Mm-hmm. It's just about connection. And so what the mile aspires to do is to create those opportunities in unexpected places sometimes, mm-hmm. because usually when uh, someone has a heightened awareness, either because of travel or heightened awareness because of poverty or whatever, they're more likely to quiet their ego mm. and just be a person. Right. And when you attend a concert, You know, that's part of it. That's part of surrendering your ego at the door. Mm -hmm. You can be in a concert in the front row or in the 150th row, side by side with somebody who has tremendous economic wealth or tremendous prosperity or someone may have just suffered horrible loss. And in that moment, it doesn't matter. You're just a person who loves a song and you're in a room to sing it together at the top Mm -hmm. of your lungs. And so to step away from the soapbox piece of it, like the, the mile does create that and the reason why i do it is for the same reasons that i work in music in the first place it's artist development it's relationship development it's it's authenticity of experiences and that's devoid of uh, any religious value or judgment any political value or judgment any socioeconomic value or judgment it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter you're just a person you want to have an experience come have it with us that's it and I, and I have to say, you know, everyone in the show notes, not only is, you know, you're getting ready for your 10th year, 10th yes. trip to Guatemala. Um, we're recording this in January. In December, we just went on their ninth trip to Guatemala. Uh, Jason had asked me, I think for the past three years to go. And I finally, I finally went this year. And I have to say, guys, you know, it, in the show notes page, I have not only a link to apply to come uh, at the end of December for this year, um, but I also am going to have um, photos and and things that I, I documented while I was on my trip there. And I have to say, I mean, I am a complete introvert. Um, I, I really don't like people 
Um, and I, I certainly don't like, uh, you know, I travel, <laughs> I travel all over, but I travel by myself. So to travel in groups, I was like, Oh, Jason, really? Um, but it's I, fine. it's only 10 people. Yeah, in a pickup truck. Exactly. It's absolutely, you know, it's, it's all good. And so I, I decided to go, I knew in my gut, it was going to be a great experience. You know, we talked about on the trip, what a leap of faith it is, because yes. if you, if you've been there before, it's very easy to understand why you would go back. But if you've never been there, it does take a leap of faith to be like, okay, this may be out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to do it anyway. And and so I do really encourage all of you to apply. And, you know, I don't I don't like to give Jason a whole lot of compliments. So this feels very unnerving Mm -hmm. to me. But I have to say, you're one of the people we talk a lot on this podcast about branding about being authentic and transparent with your audience. And and I, I do believe that you have pretty much one of the most uh, authentic brands. And I wouldn't even call it a brand, but you're just, you're you. And you say what you mean, you mean what you say. And how you run your company is the same, very similar to how you are with people in general. You know, your values carry over across it. And I want to thank you for for sharing that with us. Well, thank you so yeah. much. That is, that is such a nice thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I've been wanting to do this for months. Yes. And finally, here we are. We didn't have to wait until we got to uh, sunny Harrisburg. Uh, I, we, we do have to go back because I didn't get to my rapid fire questions okay. that I ask every guest. So I'm excited. Are you ready? No. Awesome. Perfect. That's, that's the perfect answer. If you could go back and tell yourself one lesson, what would it be? Buy Apple. No, that's stupid. Uh, worry less. Worry less. I spent so much time worrying about things that were completely immaterial. I always knew what I wanted. I just wasn't always courageous enough to go for it. And I think that if I could tell my younger self to just worry less, that would be so great. Mm. Well, I feel like like I'm younger and I call you all the time for advice. So I get the benefit of you telling me all the things right. that you've learned. So, so thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you for that. You're I'll, welcome, man. I'll write that down. I'll write that down. Yeah. All right. So if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, I would love to be able to read people's minds. Mm, that's dangerous. Because, well, no, it, it is and it isn't because I think that people tell you all the time how they feel. You're mm-hmm. just not really willing to believe them mm. either because of things that they say or because of circumstances. Sure. But the truth is pretty plain Yeah, if you're just willing to attend to the world that you're in. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So that, And I get that it's a double-edged sword and I'd probably hear some pretty <laughs> unflattering things about myself. Another great t-shirt? Jeez. It's fine. If you can invite three musicians, living or dead, to dinner, who would you invite? Uh, I would invite uh, Billy Joel mm-hmm. because I've just, that's my dude. I've always had a a deep curiosity. Mm-hmm. I would invite Beethoven. Nice. Because I've heard that no there's one's some mentioned crazy him. shit that has gone on there. And I'm a huge fan of his work. Yeah. I uh, love me some Beethoven. Uh, and I guess, oh man, three. Well, uh, yeah, I would love to speak to Trey Anastasio from Fish. Interesting. Because I love, there's so many things that I love about Fish aside from their music, mm-hmm. but talk about community building. Right. And uh, fan activation and being counterculture and mm-hmm. the thoughtful nature of everything that they do is so powerful. Mm-hmm. I would love to pick Trey's brain, if I may. I always like uh, to leave it to my guests to tell the audience 
what action they would like them to take. It could be whatever you'd like them to do this week. What's something that they should go do? Well, this, yeah, this is the message that I would love to deliver to any artist who is willing to listen. There is a song in your catalog that sucks. Stop playing it. And write more. Mm. Creativity is a, an endless spring. And you did not get into music because you love playing this one song over and over and over again. That's only what happens when you become, when you ride a banana peel to some fucking miserable success. You're going to have to play that song over and over ad nauseum until you feed worms. <laughs> you as an artist, have an obligation to be creative. And once you stop writing songs, then you're not an artist anymore. Right. It's a different thing. And for those like Billy Joel, who famous last words, the final track on River of Dreams, he wrote it knowing that that was going to be the end of it. It's definitely not my favorite Billy Joel song, but I respect the shit out of that move because mm -hmm. it is an intentional punctuation on a career. Right. For those of us who aren't Billy Joel, which is like all of us, like keep writing your shit and stop regurgitating the same shit that has you exactly where you are, which is nowhere. Let all, like there's the, the famous story of like the smoke jumpers who jump into the fire in California right. and, you know, the blaze is blowing up the mountain and it's moving faster than they can possibly run with these 50 pound backs. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing a half-assed version of the story. I'm sure you can Google it and find <laughs> the real version. But if there are 20 smoke jumpers, the lead smoke jumper says, drop your tools, which on day one of smoke jumper school, they say, never drop your tools. And those who dropped their tools were able to run fast enough to get ahead of the blaze and get up the canyon. And those who did not all fucking burned alive. And so for those of us who are in the canyon with a blaze on our backs, which is every penniless musician, right. drop your tools. Maybe it's mm -hmm. not working because it isn't working. Right. Write some new shit and try something else. Yeah. Very long story short, I got into the practice of writing a song a week in 2011 mm -hmm. after having already been a reasonably successful sure. both live performing artist and mm -hmm. songwriter in the business for mm -hmm. like, you know, for 15 years. Uh, writing a song a week may actually made me a songwriter. Right. Everything that I was doing prior to that was really just using the same five or six bag of tricks sure. ideas that I had been employing since birth. Your artist voice is as limited as you choose it to be. Mm -hmm. I think that the true artistry for most musicians, there are some that are naturally gifted and can ring the bell on their 20th song, mm -hmm. 100, 150, 200 300 songs, you got to right. push all that stuff out of you creatively to find your voice. Right. To find what really resonates for you and more importantly, what attracts an audience. And there you go. So thank you for spending so much time with us and for going through that because I know that that really speaks to musicians. That was one of the deeper actionables that we've had in all a right. while. So there yeah. you go, guys. Right. That is your actionable for this week. Jason, thank you. My pleasure. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. I don't know about you, but after our conversation together, I'm ready for whatever the industry and world in general has to throw my way. The truth is life is always going to be unpredictable. Find what you're great at and allow it to change and adapt with the times. Take a deep breath in, exhale, and trust that hard work and talent are enough to get you where you want to be no matter what life has in store. I want to thank Jason for his candidness and for leading by example when it comes to professional transparency and giving back to the community. I also want to thank Luminary for providing a wonderful space for us to meet and have this conversation. 
Luminary is a premier collaboration hub for women and women-identified professionals who are passionate about business development and expanding their networks. I'm not an affiliate, I'm just a grateful member who misses being able to go to my office away from home, and I've left more information about them and their newly integrated digital memberships and professional support in the links section in the show notes. To learn more about Jason and everything we discuss in this episode, including how to email him if you have your own thoughts about the Grammys, head on over to therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP81. Until next time, Rockstar, have a wonderful week, and I hope to see you back here next time so we can get grounded to get rising. Take care.